Welcome to You Love to See It, a podcast where we watch movies and TV shows and then tell you all about them. This week, we're watching Bong Joon-ho's 2013 apocalyptic sci-fi comic adaptation, Snowpiercer. I'm Danielle, and I'm joined today by managing editor Steven Strom. Hi. And features and trending editor Merritt Kay. So it be. <laughs> so, so it be. Uh, and so I guess as, as so I like is. to Sorry. start. So it is. So, so it is. So it nice. is. Nice. Uh, I like to start with a, uh, it, this is sort of a cut down description because the Wikipedia description is like five paragraphs long of just the description. So I'll just start with this to uh, whet everyone's appetites for Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer is a 2013 science fiction action film based on the French graphic novel Les Trans... Oh, dear God. Uh, <laughs> That's how it's called. Uh, Thank you, Merit. By Jacques Loeb, Benjamin Legrand, and Jean-Marc Rochette. The film is directed by Bong Joon-ho and written by Bong and Kelly Masterson. The movie takes place aboard the Snowpiercer train, operating on a globe-spanning track, carrying the last remnants of humanity after an attempt at climate engineering in order to stop global warming, has unintentionally created a new snowball Earth. Uh, Evans, Chris Evans, stars as Curtis Everett, a member of the lower-class tail section passengers, as they lead a revolution against the elite of the front of the train. All right, so now that we're started here uh let's do the usual thing where we like to say what our uh sort of experience with the movie is and uh how we found it this time around Merritt, have you seen this before no this is uh my first time on the snow piercer <laughs> <laughs> your your first time on the uh on the beautiful train what what did you think what, what were some of your big high level impressions this is a movie that just keeps hitting you in the face you know <laughs> like yeah <laughs> it just comes out swinging and it just doesn't stop punching you in the face until it's over mm-hmm. and that's not a bad thing like this movie yeah. just goes from set piece to set piece and they're all gorgeous and it avoids a lot of the things that i find are really not compelling about post-apocalyptic movies about inequality and we can get into that later but Mm -hmm. i find it it really deftly wove between a lot of those tropes and i love train movies too (laughs) i'm a fucking sucker for train movies like um i hate zombie movies but Mm. train to busan is like i love that even though it's a zombie movie like Mm -hmm. despite the fact that it's a zombie movie i love it um i love train murders i love train mysteries all that shit. So, like, an entire movie set on a train is like, yeah, hell yeah. Um, and I, I don't know why I didn't see this in 2013. <laughs> I think because at the time, maybe I was like, I'm over apocalypse narratives and, like, I'm not really interested in them and they're all boring and blah, blah, blah. I think I was burnt out on, like, the Hunger Games and stuff like mm. that. But, yeah, I'm glad we did this for this uh, episode because, wow. And also, like... The acting talent on display here. I mean, Chris Evans, like, we can talk about that, but everyone yeah. <laughs> else is like, this is a fucking star studded cast. Like, Ed Harris, John Hurt, um, Tilda Swinton. Uh, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Octavia Spencer. Oh my God. Yes. Like, so many amazing people in this movie. So, yeah. Song Kang Ho um, from, uh, from The Host. Yes, yes, yeah. And yeah. also Parasite now, I think he was in Parasite. Yeah. I haven't seen that. And um, what's her name Parasite. also um, was in The Host. Mm. 
uh, the daughter. Oh yeah, the woman who played the psychic Donna. daughter. Yeah, um, <laughs> I forget her name. Let me look that up real quick. Ko Asung, I think. Go Asung. Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Like, really incredible. Uh, I don't know why they are making a TV series of it. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. They are. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. Okay. How? Okay. Okay, can I tell you? Okay, now we'll get into the TV series later. Right, Let's yeah. move on. Uh, Stephen, how did you experience Snowpiercer? I had never seen it before uh, this oh. either. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know why I didn't see it before, which is um, until literally last night, I didn't realize that. So I, when this movie came out, it was 2013, I want to say. Uh, I believe I was still working in a comic book shop at the time. Um, and as part of working in a comic book shop, I was exposed to a lot of bad opinions about media by a lot of people who looked very similar to each other, uh, all the time. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, in my head, for some reason, I, I had heard, so I remember seeing the trailer for the movie and thinking, oh, that looks very cool. Uh, and then... And then remembering, this turned out to not be true, that it had very mixed reception. It was, like, maybe not worth my time. And then last night, I, like, looked at the reviews and how it was received at the time. It's, like, near universal acclaim. It's, like, 94% (laughs) on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and, like, 85% on Metacritic and stuff like that. Um, So it was actually, like, really well-liked at the time, too. And I just think that what ended up happening is a lot of the, like, um, sort of libertarian uh, bearded men that I hung out around the time um, (laughs) did not love the like sort of uh, revolutionary iconography and anti-climate change uh, messages of this film. Um, the closest I had seen to anything to this movie, I guess, if you can even call it that, is I had seen The Host. I love The Host. Um, mm. Also by the same director. Um, that's a great movie. And uh, yeah, that's, that's all I knew about it really going in was based on the trailer and that Chris Evans was in it. <laughs> that's extremely funny and i can completely see how that happened uh it it looks like one of these right it looks you know if you just see a trailer it kind of looks like oh maybe a kind of not the smartest action movie right Mm. like oh with pretty effects or whatever um i personally loved this back at the time i think it may have actually been uh like spring of 2014 by the time it came to all of america uh because i think I remember uh, doing a video, and we talk about this later. This is not like a huge point or anything, but remember I was working at Polygon at the time. I was on the video team at the time, and I did a video that was like, is this a Bioshock movie? <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> uh, which was fun and like a cute thing at the time. And it, yeah, again, we could talk about this later, but really enjoyed it at the time and hadn't seen it in the last, you know, at least six years, uh, whatever it's been. Uh, and my big high-level view of it is that I really, really do enjoy this movie. I think it's very, very good. Uh, and I also feel like it's from a time that was not so long ago, but it feels like this was 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> and yeah. there are several elements of this. We'll, we'll talk about uh, several of them, but I, I do want to point out a couple of things. Stephen, a couple of your sort of negatives about the movie, the thing about the bugs, the thing about the sort of evil queers. And uh, at the very, very beginning of the movie, even before the movie starts, there's the big Harvey Weinstein company sort of titles oh. over, over the top. These are some elements that make it feel like, oh my God, this is from a bygone era, even though it's you know only from 20 2013. It was made in 2013, I think released in Korea in 2013, and then early 2014, possibly, uh, for uh, like most of America. I was living in California at the time. Yeah. So, and yeah. so we shouldn't talk about him basically at all, but I just want to add, like, okay, so he's like a fucking evil 
man. And like, that's yes. not even a, like no joking. Um, yeah. Also the reason that this movie didn't come out in the States until yes. 2014 <laughs> was that he was stonewalling it and being like, no, you have to cut all this stuff and add like a, a monologue at the beginning VO. and end to explain yep. everything. Oh my God. They blade and, runnered uh, it. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. what he wanted to do. And eventually Bond got it released uncut because there was this big like petition campaign and everything. And uh, it wasn't released, like it didn't get a wider US release until right. like late summer 2014, I think. Oh shit, okay, so it was even later than I thought. Yeah, no, it's it's bananas. Like, huh. and, and just sort of seeing that at the beginning is like, oh, this is from a while ago. <laughs> even though it doesn't feel like necessarily a while ago, but yeah, it's uh, 100%. Um, so yeah, we should talk a little bit through the premise, the sort of general flow of the movie. Uh, it begins with a sort of, uh, it does begin not with a crawl, but with some shots of the sort of outer world and a sort of a montage of news clips about this new substance that's going to, you know, get climate change to reverse. And instead, it turns the Earth into a frozen wasteland. And the only survivors are on this little arc, right? Basically, they're on this super high tech train, which, by the way, is a perpetual motion machine uh, made by a tech god, which uh, Stephen you have a great point here, which we can we can do it now because I think it's actually pretty funny. But uh, Stephen, I mean, uh, do you want to do you want to make the connection right here in the beginning? He's it's I forget his last name. It's Wilford is what the character's name. And he's basically yeah, just yeah. like sci fi Elon Musk. He's like, what if Elon <laughs> Musk got to build his big dumb train? Uh, yep. And and then only the only people in the world were people who had to listen to Elon Musk talk about how smart he was all the time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I think that's very good framing, to be honest, because it, it really does fit. It really does suit this. And, uh, of course, it is uh, one big sort of revolution and class struggle uh, piece about literally uh, going to the front of the train from the back of the train, uh, where Curtis, Chris Evans, Captain America, which at the time, this is before I liked Chris Evans at all. Mm. Like, he, he did some goodwill for me by being in and being awesome in Knives Out. So this is back when I was like, Chris Evans, woof. Uh, so uh, he has always been the sort of weakest link in the movie for me. But I again, I... I uh, I have softened on that part a little bit, uh, but that is something we will probably talk about. Uh, but he and John Hurt and Octavia Spencer and a number of other folks are in the sort of uh, lower class of the train. They're in the back. The tail they are the end, people I think who they didn't call it. have a ticket or they didn't have a good ticket or whatever the sort of beginning of the uh, uh, this whole world was. And they're planning a revolution. And that actually the inciting incident for this is a number of children are taken. Uh, from them, basically. We see a roll call first, and then we see uh, someone actually get taken to the front because he was a violinist, uh, and people are beaten up. It's a very, very brutal, very, very fascist kind of structure that they live under. Uh, and the production design here, I think, does an incredible, incredible job of really showing everything is sort of a repurposed material. It's perpetually dark. There are no windows back there. Uh, and everyone lives in, you know, squalid conditions. They're in these terrible bunk beds. Everybody looks like they smell terrible. It's really, really doing a lot here. It's a very sort of over-the-top kind of, uh, but, but very effective, I think, uh, sort of mise-en-scene, if you will. It's so grimy. I love yeah. how grimy it is. <laughs> yeah. I love how filthy everyone is. Literally to the movie. point where later on in the movie, and I think this is a great scene, and I think it's a thing that in a lesser movie would have been handled more poorly, but uh, 
where they finally encounter just like rich people in the wild and the rich people aren't scared of these people with weapons and guns and you know stuff they're like revolted they're like literally yeah. like repelled by the sight and smell of them yeah I mean, it's, they would smell bad, though. Good. They would, but I just they think would smell that it's really bad. Yeah, I just think it's very interesting <laughs> <laughs> that like the people in the movie, like they're not even they're not afraid because they can't picture a. And I think this is something we'll come back to later, but yeah. they they can't picture a world where their status or their position is threatened in any meaningful way. So what they're worried about is like the fact that who let these dirty people up tier into the front where we're supposed to be. That's the thing that they're worried about. They're not worried about being dethroned or killed or anything like that because they can't. They literally can't even imagine that sort of thing and i feel like <laughs> in a more action heavy-handed movie like this or a version of this um we would see them just like running and screaming and we wouldn't see any sh like close-up shots of their faces they would just get out of the scene and then we would have a big fight yeah i think that's that's absolutely true i think the cinematography in this movie is maybe its finest element uh for sure they're uh they actually constructed these sets they constructed something like 16 train cars like a, a large number i forget the exact number they constructed them on gimbals so that they would move like a train and they physically shot all of these these shots on you know a physical set and there are a number of environments here uh so they go forward through the kind of grimy back of the train through a lot of sort of industrial areas of the train including where their terrible food is processed which Again, Stephen notes here uh, in the notes that are like they eat bugs and it's supposed to be this horrifying, gross revelation where like maybe now in 2020 that might not be super appetizing to me. I'm a vegetarian, but like it doesn't seem that weird anymore. Yeah, like, people, eat, people eat bugs. It's not that strange, but yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it is shot in such a way that it's like in this giant vat of insects and it's being ground up into a paste and that's where people eat, they eat it, the protein yeah, blocks. That it's was a good shot. Weird. It's a good it's shot, a good but shot, like but it's, it was a little overdramatic, I thought. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I think maybe I knew that going in. Like, I think that was maybe one of the things that I had read on the wiki like years ago. Like, oh yeah, they're being fed insects. But like, what did they think they were eating? <laughs> like, right. Right. <laughs> And maybe yeah. this also just speaks to like how old this movie feels now compared to even just a few years later to our current state, like state of the world where there have been so many pieces in whatever the New Yorker or whatever about how we're all going to be eating bugs in five years. And it's just like right. we're slowly acclimating to the fact, well, it's like, yeah, of course, of course, like we're not going to have any land to, you know, and uh, to put animals on anymore. So, yeah, of course. Uh huh. Sure. Protein paste, whatever. Uh, they're making they're making burgers out of bugs as we speak and trying to make them taste better. You know, like that that is become such a like almost a trendy thing to talk about and write about these days that I think it like yeah. just comes across as less strange. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those anachronisms of the movie that's just like whoa, <laughs> whoa, this is old even though it doesn't look terribly old. Uh, <laughs> also, people eat bugs. Pe people have been eating bugs for a long time. It's not that weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not that weird. Um, <laughs> uh, and they continue to move forward. Uh, they encounter a character played by Tilda Swinton. I think her name is Mason. Yeah. Yes, Mason is basically an Ayn Rand slash horrible British dignitary <laughs> who sucks, uh, is wearing wild false teeth and a very sort of fascist costume that has like handmade medals on it, which is hilarious and very good. Well, that's uh, the second time she shows up because she shows up because... the first time in like this big fur coat. Yes. And that's when like, when they're punishing that guy and like making an example yeah. of him for like fighting back when they're trying to take the kids and they 
punish him by like they have these special holes that are just for sticking people's arms out of the train mm-hmm. <laughs> yep like they sure built do. those um because i can't see any other possible purpose except maybe like putting trash out um, yeah dumping wastes waste but, of some kind maybe but yeah. yeah um but yeah so they freeze his arm off and she's like giving this speech <laughs> and it's just like she's so good in this movie because oh yeah She's she rides that line between really scary and really incompetent mm-hmm. so well. <laughs> like she is like this Margaret Thatcher type, and she's like she's a clown, right? She's like a right. scary clown, and it's so her, good. Her speech is just this rambling nonsense where she's like mm-hmm. really trying to get a point across, but she's just repeating herself over and over again and talking about like mixing her metaphors and talking about how like shoes aren't hats, hats are hats, and shoes are shoes. <laughs> I wouldn't wear a hat on my shoe or, you know, just like total nonsense. And she tries to cap it all off because she finishes too early. So she tries to cap it all off with a uh, phone call to the front of the train to the Elon Musk character who just does not answer the phone. And she's just left with nothing else to say at the end and just kind of like vamps for time for a few seconds while they're like torturing this man in front of her. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I think it's one of the highlights of the early movie. Uh, well, everything with her in it is a highlight of this movie, but mm-hmm. that in in particular. Tilda so Swinton rules. She actually yeah. wanted to look more extreme, which, like, if you know anything about her, is like probably not surprising. Um, <laughs> she just wanted to look like a completely different person, and like Bong had to be like, "No, you can't. Like, I'm sorry, but like, you can't do your own makeup anymore. It looks ridiculous." Um, <laughs> Also, what was the movie where she recently where she like plays an old man purely because that was the only oh, reason she would be in the movie? Yeah. Uh, it's the remake of Suspiria. So weird. Oh, it was very right. strange. Um, right. Also, Bond talked to John C. Riley about playing Mason. So like, imagine that movie because that is a very different movie. Boy, yeah. yeah. He, I mean, he's done dramatic work. But he is also, like, I mean, I think he would work for this. It would just be very different. Like, he would be a a scary clown in, like, a very different way. Yeah. I completely agree. I feel like he would be more bumbling. He would be presented more bumbling than, like, Mm -hmm. just meandering the way she is. Yeah. Like, he would be out. He would just constantly feel out of his depth where, like, and you would see it visibly, like, in his acting, whereas Tilda Swinton very much, like, she never realizes that she's out of her depth until she's so far out of her depth that she literally has a knife to her throat later on Mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, She never. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, there is, like, a really beautiful tension in this performance between every time she realizes she's outgunned, she's like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. She just (laughs) fully you know, figuratively shits herself and is like, not my fault. Hey, buddy. Like, it's mm-hmm. the most like milk toast, shitty politician uh, sort of performance that and being a domineering buffoon. Like, right there. It, it's she's playing this on like the knife's edge of both of those things. And it feels to me like this this person, this character kind of knows she's on the knife's edge. She kind of knows she's an idiot, but doesn't care. It's, it's like a really affected performance that works for me really really well <laughs> and not I, I, I this will be the last thing i say about this specific part and i'm promise, promise we can move on but like it reminds me too ironically or coincidentally rather of um people talking about parasite and how a bunch of rich people really love parasite and stuff like that and it's like yeah because yeah. they don't have to care they don't have to care that they're the people being like vilified and made fun of and stuff like that because they ha- hold all the power they have all the money 
in in this movie she's a, a very similar to that and i think this movie does a great job of providing like just a plurality of different shitty fascist archetypes that yeah. like all working together in concert, like keep it from being too cartoony because like no one person is like one kind of mustache twirling villain. We get to see a lot of different <laughs> kinds. <laughs> yeah. And, and on that same note, like we have different types of revolutionaries too here, mm. right? Like we have, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead because I do want to talk about Octavia Spencer's character a little bit here, but we do have many different sort of well, this is a good place to talk about it. Many different types of revolutionaries who are fighting for different causes. And Octavia Spencer is not in all of the movie, but I think she is also an incredible uh, sort of portion of the early part of the movie. Her son, Timmy, is taken and she fights back. She actually physically tries to fight the like horrible fascist evil assholes with guns and she's beaten up and she actually has like a black eye, like a swollen eye for the rest of the movie after that. Uh, and there was a note that, you know, she's she's a black woman and there was something, you know, there was like a, a special tension about filming those scenes in terms of her being beaten up by cops. It's there's no way you're not going to sort of invoke uh, Rodney King kind of images with that sort of thing. So that was something the director was very aware of and they were aware of that kind of imagery. She's also like a really just a good character. Like mm -hmm. she's funny and she's fiery and she's clearly a huge part of the revolutionary life even before Timmy is taken. She's, you know, she's in with the planning. She and the other people, the other sort of folks in the in the car are all kind of co-parenting Timmy, which is like a sweet and weird and kind of cool feature of the early movie of like, oh, these are everybody's kids. Like everybody cares about these kids. They're taking care of them. They are trying to get them out of trouble. They're trying to, you know, have a life. And there's all these little... Uh, little bits and pieces of production design of the way people have decorated their tiny area. There's an artist character who, you know, they have no technology in the back. So he's drawing, he's drawing sketches of people. Uh, and, and she sort of uses a sketch of Timmy as they go through the train trying to find him. So there's all these really lovely little things that are like people in this, this back of the train suffer so much, but they really are kind of doing their best to take care of each other and do what they can for each other. Uh, which I think is is actually kind of a cool part of the movie. Uh, however, Curtis, being this sort of main revolutionary, seems like he's the most bloodthirsty person on this entire train in a lot of ways. Like he's he's willing to kind of uh, suffer himself, but also kind of move forward no matter what is happening, no matter how bad things are, no matter if his buddies are getting killed, he will still kind of keep moving forward. So there is a, both a communal sense of, of how these people live and how they have tried to get on in a terrible situation, and also a sense of there is competition here. There is bloodthirstiness here. Uh, and it's, it is effective, and it is something I've noticed more uh, watching it the second time. And, and that's interesting, too. That'll get to be something we talk about in the ending. But, like, the, the whole idea of the competition among themselves and stuff like that. Like, he kind of falls into the role of the leader technically against his wishes. We always hear him talking about how he doesn't want to be the leader, but we only ever hear it when he's in conversation with John Hurt's character, um, right. Gilliam. <laughs> Gilliam, yeah. But, like, in front of everybody else, he's always constantly, like, just ass it's just assumed that he will be in charge of everybody else, which ends up becoming a major factor in the ending of the movie where we realize that that was very much part of the plan that was always intended to be the case. Uh, and I think they pulled that part off pretty well by the end. But it, to your point, too, about, like, everybody working together and living together, I, they do a really good job in a very short amount of time because, like you said, Merritt, this movie moves so fast and never stops, uh, which is appropriate for a movie about a train, I guess. Um, <laughs> that, 
like they do a really good job of laying out this idea that no, like everybody's communally raising Timmy and knows each other. There's that great shot of Edgar crawling around the train trying to uh, catch Timmy because <laughs> yeah. he has like a secret message inside of his food bar. Um, and he's like saying, hey, you know, hey, Josh, hey, you know, hey, what's up? And like to uh, all the different people as he's walking past them or whatever. And it does this good job of establishing that like everybody here knows each other and lives with each other and, you know, coexists with each other because they have literally no choice. Physically, they do not have the space not to be a part of each other's lives, even if they wanted to be or if they didn't want to be. Um, and the movie has a lot of great like visual storytelling. But I think that's one of the better moments of the early film uh, when it does that. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And there, there's some really great sequences in this sort of towards the end of the early part when they're actually starting the revolution and uh, they're sort of using barrels. I think it's barrels. I think to, it's barrels. To break down some doors. Are they barrels? It's, it's <laughs> barrels that they've like taped together and they're like using sure. them to prop open gates so the gates can't close because mm-hmm. they fall on top of the barrels. Yeah, that's extremely good. It's a very video uh, game we kind of, thing. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that's like a very video game ass, like, <laughs> pop yeah. the doors open so that you can get through. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have four seconds. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really good. Uh, I think there's a kind of turning point when we get to one of the bloodiest fight scenes uh, in a car where uh, the the whole car goes dark because they're going into a certain tunnel, which means it's the new year. So the way this whole world works, of course, is the train is in perpetual motion all around the entire world. And so they go to the same places every year, right? And there's a really bloody, kind of violent, brutal scene here uh, that plays out partially in the dark, partially with sort of night vision goggles and partially in sort of these like shafts of light that is very, very like the shooting style here is so stylized. It is almost uh, like almost samurai movie style, uh, even though we're not talking about swords. We're talking about sort of blunt instruments. There's a lot of bludgeoning <laughs> and, and very <laughs> and sharp hatchets. Yeah. Yes. A lot of hatchets here, uh, which is going on. Uh, do you folks have any special thoughts about this particular scene? I mean, there's a long shot before they go, before they switch angles that is just like the, like it's like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a 2D plane um, of just him moving and hatcheting people. And I feel like that style of shot is like always very dramatic in films um, of just like that some guy, like one guy just like kind of like hacking his way through a bunch of people. Um, and they don't do that for the whole length of the car. Um, they do end up switching up the shots, which I think is interesting. And I feel like also like with a train, like with the, the movie being set on a train, it sort of like limits the angles that you can shoot from almost not even just like yeah. a technical sense, but in like a thematic sense, like what makes sense. So there are like a lot of these like wide long shots across, but also like a lot of like back and forth, like the train, like up and down. Yeah. And they they did something special with uh, kind of, I forget exactly how they did it and I could look this up probably, but they did uh, use certain angles so that it always seems like we're moving forward. They're always Mm, kind of mm -hmm. like left to right is always moving forward. Right. Yeah. Left to right. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. It's an auto scrolling level. It is an auto-scrolling level, yeah. (laughs) 
I, I like that, actually. It, I mean, it, it, it kind of makes sense, to be honest. Like, yes, uh, there's a lot of video gamey elements. Uh, and, it, and this movie comes from like an age, like an era where I feel like we were finally starting to see. I mean, at its heart, this movie is an action movie, right? With with like a lot of really good um, kind of themes and cinematography in it. But it is an action movie, like, right? right? Like, OK, I'm, I'm not crazy to think that. Um, no, but not I, at all. <laughs> okay, I, and I do feel like this was coming around the same time because this came out, you know, in you know, in, originally um, one year after Dread came out, which was I think the same year oh, that yeah. the Raid came out. <laughs> and I feel like that we're finally that was about the era where I finally started to notice that a lot of films were taking video gamey elements and like incorporating them, you know, some more obviously than others into movies and action and like the progression of action and stuff like that. Where it is in the raid and dread it is the progression from the bottom floor to the top of the floor fighting in new environments fighting new types of enemies that and then there are literal boss fights in some cases and i think this movie does a lot of the same thing where it's like the the first boss is a big giant ogre man with a big hammer that holds them back uh from that first (laughs) gate and then like then you've got your um like of course you have to have your um zorn and thorn type like dual equivalents which is the two queer uh weird I don't know. Assassin men? Assassin I men, guess. I guess. Who are these people? I don't know. They're wait, like... Wait, what? The well-dressed guy who just never dies and his probably boyfriend who dies way earlier. Oh, wait. I, did, I didn't get that read up all off of them. Maybe they I wasn't were, paying close enough attention. They were cuddling uh, each other during the torture scene. Uh, and like resting uh, each other's heads on each other's shoulders and stuff like that. Oh, so I guess I just assumed that... I guess I missed that. that. Yeah, okay. And then the, the fact that the one guy is so doggedly determined to kill them after that point, I assumed it was like, oh, they uh, killed my lover. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, which I, I I think my number one negative on this movie is actually those characters, which I can get into now if we want to. Uh, yeah, I think it's fair because this is where one of them is killed, is in this black, not black and white, but the darkness and light scene. I think. he. I believe this is where he dies. The right first the one, the guy with the longer it, yeah. hair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, it is. Um, okay. He's impaled, I think. Or no, is that the yeah, other no, guy? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Yona spears him when he falls. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. like running forward and he trips and Yona uh, puts a spear up so he lands on it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think those characters, I think this is to me like very much, and again, this is maybe, hmm, I don't want to say it's of its time because that's such a lame excuse for anything, but um, I feel like it's maybe something that wouldn't happen today. Uh, as Maybe a better way to put it. And I think it's that they use those characters' queerness and queer iconography around them as just like a way to further other them and make them feel strange and austere. And it's like, oh, these guys are interesting and, you know, weird because they're gay and they never talk, but they're also like super badass and and kill people really good and stuff like that. They like feel like Roger Moore Bond villains. Like there were definitely. There was, liter- yes. there was literally, that was literally a thing in an old Roger Moore Bond movie. There was like a yeah. gay couple assassin duo um, that was kind of the same dynamic. Um, and it was used in that same way as just like window dressing to make them seem like different. Um, and I don't love that. I don't love that because there are no other, as far as I could tell, maybe I missed some uh, thing. There are no other queer characters among the revolutionaries. Uh See, this is funny because I didn't get this at all. And I think it's maybe just I miss I looked away at that crucial moment when those characters were. <laughs> and I assumed the other guy was just like this trope of like unstoppable henchman guy. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get that part at all. And like, actually, what I liked when I was talking earlier about the tropes that a lot of these movies fall into, 
I feel like one of them is always like, okay, we need shorthands for depicting how bad the like ruling class is. Um, and so like, we need to show them being decadent, which is like a really loaded term. Um, or like degenerate, which is even more loaded. Uh, mm. But like, how do you do that? Okay, they're partying all the time. They're eating like really fancy food. Um, they're being like sexually indiscriminate. I feel like right. like the Hunger Games movies did a lot of this of like, oh, the rich people are so like ostentatious and like queer looking. But like yep. <laughs> in this, I feel like most of, ex- with the exception of maybe one scene, uh, which is like the the drug addicts in the club. Yeah. All of the other depictions of like the the rich people in this film are just like normie, like old timey rich people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, actually, I got a queer relationship. Like, I read a queer relationship off of um, Gray and Gilliam. Yeah, like I, I definitely thought that was like a an older man, younger guy kind of like sure. sexual relationship. And like, just there's the one scene where he's like, like tussling his hair. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's gay. They're gay. Like, uh-huh. it's, it's, that's it. Um, and so like, I kind of liked that this movie didn't go for like the whole, oh, the poor people are like normal and have normal families and are like hetero and good. Right. And like the rich people are degenerates who are like um, having gay sex and doing drugs all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, I I didn't get that from from Gilliam and Curtis um, until you said that. I do like that read. No, I, not, not Gilliam and Curtis. Uh, the younger oh, guy. Oh, sorry. Uh, Which one's Gray, the younger guy? The knife what? man. Knife yeah, man. Knife, knife. He was like the... The um, acrobatics knife man. Yeah. Oh, the, MMA, the parkour MMA guy. Man. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, okay. Yeah. All right. Fair. <laughs> sure. That that uh, eliminates the point I was about to make, though. So yeah, okay, I, I can definitely get behind that. And even if they, that is not the the read that I had or was supposed to have, like they already do a lot of work that we already talked about of like establishing that like this that these people do not exist in like any kind of nuclear family unit at all. They because they literally physically can't, and they all just take care of yeah. each other. Um, so I think they do a good job of that. And also like to, to the point of like old timey rich people and stuff like that. Like I think the movie also does a good job, like shifting gears a tiny bit. Um, once you get to the rich people, it's 99% of the rich, the actual rich people in charge of anything are all white. And a lot of their like laborers and people that they use for entertainment and like the sushi chef and the people working in the orchard and stuff like mm-hmm. that are mostly people of color. Even the people of color who like work with the cops or whatever are always like, beneath mason or whatever like the i think there's one um asian american man who is uh uh like a low-level lieutenant among the weird fascist cops but that's it uh okay real quick like korean officers i think on Mm. the yeah there are Um, are are you seeing the wikipedia thing yes real quick so they're not gay they're brothers Wait, what? Oh. The, the henchmen are brothers. They're called Franco the Elder and Franco the Younger. Oh. Okay. So I thought you were looking at this other thing, which also supports exactly uh, what you're going to say. But um, the so, uh, Bong did a did a slight um, uh, wow, a, the term. He did a slight. Uh, what is the term like when you're going back? He, and he did a rowling. Uh, Redcon. A little bit, but he without did a JK the back rowling. part of that. Uh, so apparently he said after the movie came out, he revealed some background information. There are homosexual relationships among the men. Gilliam and Gray seem like a couple with a large age gap. Oh. Gilliam is someone whom Gray admires deeply, of course, but you can imagine they sleep together too. And Gilliam sends Gray to Curtis. 
<laughs> so, wow, voice both. of God. We're both, right. I guess. I guess we got some some good gay in here, uh, sort of. And and no bad guy gays, I guess, at all. Like Merritt just fucking ferreted so it I out. I thought it was both. So we're all on every. <laughs> so we were all wrong about everything. Never basically. mind. This movie's perfect. <laughs> Actually, Merritt, I think you were right about both. So, you know, it's all right. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, uh, cool. See? We can all have fun. All right. Wrap up the podcast. Let's uh, let's just close out the recording. I think we have we nothing left to say. It's- all these notes need to be thrown out immediately. No. <laughs> uh, we also, we, we haven't talked enough probably about Yona and, uh, oh my God, what Nam is her Gun. father's name? Yeah. They call him Nam through most of the movie. Nam, that's okay, right. Who so- is? <laughs> go ahead. Go for it. Uh, on this, okay, so the movie translates. Um, they have these like tra- pocket translator things, right? Um, because uh, uh, Nam Su's character only speaks Korean, and <laughs> Chris Evans keeps calling him Nam. So, like, I looked this up because um, I I read that Bong like intentionally named the character something that he thought would be hard for like non-Koreans to pronounce. Mm. So like Nam Gung is like, he thought that that would be a a difficult name, like intentionally. Sure. And um, Curtis runs into him and keeps calling him Nam. And he's like, he responds, but it's not translated at one point. He says, Nam Gung is my surname and Minsu is the name, you ignorant bastard. (laughs) And uh, the translator, that's when the translator is like, unknown, cannot parse. Uh Um, because, Please use different language. Yeah, because he has a two-syllable family name. Mm. Most uh, family names in Korean are one syllable. Um, so he should either be called Namgung or Minsu, but like uh, calling him Nam and like the translator just is like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we don't get that either. So There's you have so, to look that up unless you speak Korean. So many good little details like that through this movie. Like again, with the like unspoke like the the movie is so broad and so obvious in a lot of ways but like i think really does a good job of supporting itself with stuff like that like another one of my favorite scenes uh from very early on in the movie that's kind of like establishes just to like almost as a counterpoint to how much everybody in the tail end cares about each other the way that the fascists do not care about them whatsoever the part where they shatter that guy's arm um and they're like and mason is like he's fine and then they show him on the ground and just at the very corner corner of the frame you can see the cops like kicking chunks of his frozen meat oh my um, God, off to I the side yeah. oh yeah there's just like they're just like brushing them aside with their feet so that it's not in the way as they walk away uh it's so good it's such a like immediate like understanding of how they view people in the back of the train which is to say they do not view them as people they do not it, like they're objects which is a theme that is repeated throughout the movie until the very end um but it does such a good job of foreshadowing like not even foreshadowing just like punctuating that point right away yeah yeah agreed it it, it does so much with it, it is a very sort of broad type of morality but it does so much in the small moment to moment storytelling that it is oh it's real good uh one thing I want to note uh, is a sort of middle middle period here uh, where we have the, 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 the folks are all together. We have our security expert and his psychic daughter, who I think is just psychic. I think, uh, Sometimes I'm not people sure are just exactly psychic. How. It's like a Philip K. Dick book. Sometimes people are just psychic. We don't really talk about it. 
that's one of my Honestly. notes here in my list of big questions. Just like, is she just psychic? Is she? They they ask that. He says like, are you clairvoyant? And they never really answer it, but she must be because like they never explain it any other way. I I think she just is. She because she's doing all her uh, congle. Cronol, cronol, that's what it's called. Oh, uh, sure. Which is industrial waste, which is also <laughs> flammable, but it gets you real high. It's so like industrial like, C4. <laughs> yeah, basically. So it's a useful substance for both getting a security expert to open gates and also, uh, you know, maybe blow things up. But that's that's for another time. Uh, they go through this sort of wondrous, and this is the sort of most Bioshocky part, kind of mm, uh, to me, mm-hmm. of the whole movie, of the wondrous sort of. Uh, areas of the train, like the agriculture portion of the train, where they're growing beautiful things in the soil. And, you know, uh, Yona, who is a train baby, so she was born on the train and never knew the outside world, doesn't know what dirt is. And she's asking, like, can I eat this? This looks cool. Uh, They go to the beautiful aquarium where all the fish go, where they can have sushi twice a year. And Mason explains, oh, you know, we only have it twice a year because every fish is accounted for. Uh, and they have their sushi. It's almost like they're doing this tour of the, you know, exotic lands of the train. Then they go to the school, and this sequence is another turning point. Oh, my God. Shall we say? God, that fucking school scene. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You want to take this school scene? It sounded like, Merritt, you had some opinions, too, and I don't want to just talk over everything. Oh, just before we get to the school scene, first of all, that aquarium shot is like... Oh. comes out of nowhere and it's so gorgeous and I, <laughs> yeah. it, the lighting in that scene is just like perfect um and then when you got to the, the sushi part i like was screaming because this yeah. is like another just like huge punch in the face like it's like okay obviously we know that like we're gonna see like um we're gonna see how they live and it's gonna be really extravagant and stuff but it's just like oh yeah we have a fucking aquarium and it's for sushi do you want mm-hmm. some sushi? And I was just like, what the fuck? Uh-huh. You can't. You can't do that. <laughs> and, uh, and it re- immediately recontextualizes an earlier scene in that movie, which is the, it's back to the the mm-hmm. train that goes dark, the car that goes dark, because yeah. the way that they like flaunt themselves in front of the people to like show like how badass they are is they take a catfish and like slice it open with an ax and pass it around between them. Almost, I, at first I almost thought like, are they trying to like, are they going to try to bribe the back? Are they going to say like, hey, you can have something small, you can have a fish um, <laughs> as a thing or whatever? I was very confused by that. I, I, like I, I thought there was going to be like a message inside of the fish. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. Uh, I I, th- I think it is intentionally a little austere. I think it, that whole scene is very weird. Like there's that whole part where they all like stop to chant Happy New Year. Like, oh my god, that's perfect though. That's so good. Yeah, it's so good. That whole like like but yeah, but it's it recontext the the sushi scene ends up recontextualizing that because they're like all Mason can talk about is like everything is perfectly controlled. It's all about math. It's all about population. We need to make sure everything is just so. This stuff is so rare because of the population control that we can only have sushi. We have an entire car dedicated to sushi and we can only have it (laughs) twice a year. And then they just like take out a fucking catfish and like cut it up in front of them and drop it on the floor. Like right in front of them. Like it just shows immediately like how full of shit they are like about everything (laughs) and and how it's actually like 
like a lot of fascist movements and a lot of like so like Elon Musk style like crypto fascist rich people like who try to say that everything is about logic and you know in like how smart they are and they can just see the curve of the universe and that's why that they are meant to be in charge it's like actually no it's just you're a bunch of petty fucking dipshits who uh, <laughs> want to be in charge and need to justify to yourself why you're in charge so you like have to tell yourself like that you're the smartest person in the room right. and it turns out 100%. actually you just have guns Yep. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, yeah. I just want to also say uh, there's an incredible thing. Just going back to what you're saying, Merritt, about the lighting in that aquarium, you can almost kind of see the the sort of winter wonderland or winter hellscape, I guess, in the outside of it. So mm-hmm. there's like both the incredible light coming in through the the sort of water uh, Doppler effect or whatever it's called, uh, you know, that sort of light rays kind of moving gently through the water, and also it's blown out lighting because everything is snow, and it's just like holy shit (laughs) incredible it's just oh my god the lighting oh oh so good (laughs) so um before we move we should get to the school but one last thing about the um that scene with all of the axe men like that was incredibly unnerving yeah and the choice to have them wearing ski masks with no eyes but Uh with mouths like that at that point i was like oh like all of the the mouths in the scene are just like it's just like really straightforward like metaphor for like the upper class of the train they just are consuming right mm-hmm. and like yeah. the fact that she has false teeth too was really funny but like their designs i was trying to think like okay what does this remind me of and it's two things i think it's um in hellraiser oh. there's the one the yes. chatterer chatterbox yeah or chatterbox yeah. um and Another thing was um, uh, Resident Evil. Uh, oh, Nemesis. Liquors. Oh, Nemesis. Okay. Yeah. If you look at Nemesis, it's like it does have eyes, but they're like very small. And uh, it just has this horrible, huge mouth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's something really unsettling about like just seeing. It's like not even seeing someone's lower face, but like just their mouth. Right. Yeah. Like it makes they- them look like like monsters they lean into that too because like there's the part i think it's when they're all kind of in like a temporary ceasefire because they're over the bridge and the bridge is like um hitting ice flows so they have to like stop because they're all just gonna get knocked down anyway so they just wait and chant happy new year and all that uh Mm -hmm. there's a scene where while that's all happening um Curtis looks to his left and sees one of them like up close and it, it, all you see is his mouth and it's just like covered in blood as if he has like bitten into somebody and like just taken a big old bite out of them and is like dry- and then he looks at Curtis and smiles but all you can see on screen yeah. is the smile. Oh. So unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> super super effective. Uh and and also effective of course is this batshit school scene oh. where we go to a, a Kristen Bell lookalike. It's not Kristen Bell. But. Oh my God, right? Uh, yeah, no. Her, her name, okay, her name is Allison Pill, but she does look yes. a lot like Kristen Bell. Yeah. Oh, that's the most For fucked minute, up thing you've ever said about up. Kristen Bell. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a very, like, a friendly face. It's a school teacher. Everything Shoot. is wild primary colors the children sing weird songs tilda swinton sings the weird songs and we get a hefty dose of backstory here through a video like a very art deco looking uh video of wilford and his train and the sort of history of the train and how he made a he always loved trains and now it's a luxury cruise line for the rich 
uh, and how it became an ark, basically, for humanity and, and so on and so forth. And his beliefs are basically a religion uh, in this in this world. You know, Tilda Swinton is kind of like a true believer in this religion. She knows all those songs. She's, she's singing them away. Right. Uh, and then we have another turn in the action where Eggman, I'm just going to call him Eggman. <laughs> Uh, comes in and it's, it's a bald man with a sort of a, a European accent and he gives everyone an egg for the new year. But surprise, there are bullets in them, which is uh, we didn't really mention this earlier. That's my fault. But uh, one of the reasons the revolution starts is because uh, the upper class, the fascists have run out of bullets. And so that allows them to kind of get ahead with, uh, you know, blunt instruments as weapons. Well, now there are bullets in the guns of the fascists again. So we have another uh, slate of character deaths including Tilda Swinton, um, or not Tilda Swinton, but her character Mason. Sorry, that was, that was one of those. Uh, Tilda yeah. Swinton's last movie, she was, uh, you know, we already her talked about how- literally just shot her in the face and everyone like, thinks oh, it's no. fine. Like, why is nobody talking about this? Captain um, America, why would you do that? That's just problematic. Uh, I mean, he shoots, yeah. he shoots fascists. I've seen those movies. I guess, do you know? I guess it's thematically appropriate, uh, but uh, what, what did what did you folks think of the school scene? Were there uh, things you especially uh, found memorable here? Do you want to start with this one, Merritt? Because it sounded like you maybe had some opinions about it. God, just Alison Pill, just fucking like, <laughs> she's in this movie for like 10 minutes and just fucking owns those 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, just like, just takes those 10 minutes and just... This role as like a slightly manic, like possibly like on speed kind of teacher. Right. Who seems like a little medicated, but just like also like really like, yeah, kids, come on. Like she believes it as much as as she's trying to get them to. Right. And then when they just whip out the submachine guns and she just starts shooting at them, like, like she's done it like a dozen times before. Like, she's not, like, unsteadily, like, uh, I don't know. Uh-huh. She just pulls it out and starts shooting it one-handed. In, in like a school. <laughs> like, literally does a school shooting in front of her students. In her own school. Yeah. Right. Which oh, is- wait. Is that what... A- oh, my God. Is that what she was in? She was in Scott Pilgrim. That's where I've seen her. Oh, oh who is okay. she in that? Uh, She's Kim. Oh, she is! Okay. Holy shit. Yeah. I... I- Almost couldn't tell with the uh, blonde hair, but yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, she's been in a lot of stuff since then, but that's, I think, like, the last big thing that I remember I guess she's going to be in Picard. She's going to be in Picard, yeah, apparently. That's very cool. I'm 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 excited for that now. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but oh my God, just like, what a turn. (laughs) Again, another punch in the face. Like, it's just like, okay, we get to rest for, like, a couple minutes, and then it just, like, all hell breaks loose again. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's 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 boy because yeah the there's the mix of like you know her juxtaposition of like being this kind of like like you said like definitely a teacher who is on Ritalin to try and keep up with her own overexcited children. Um, and also she seems she appears to be pregnant or is that like a fake thing that where she's I think holding she her? She is. Gun? Yeah. Okay. Because I I believe it is Curtis just proceeds to fucking whip a knife right into her face after she starts killing everyone. (laughs) They kill her so dead in this scene. (laughs) Um, And it is just, again, like, yeah, it's like the, the rest is completely gone at that point. Like, you know, there, there is nothing left 
to do um and you, that, that's kind of a, a running thing as you go from car to car in this like they get almost no time to rest for various reasons there's like the sauna where it seems like okay nope there's no really anybody in here but then the bad guys catch up with them oh there's the drugged out uh ravers or whatever and oh we'll get past them but then they turn on them as well and uh, that part actually kind of didn't make a ton of sense to me but maybe they have drugs. Well, maybe could, oh, okay they have drugs right <laughs> they want drugs right they want drugs they're, that's how oh, yeah, 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 yeah. like they're, they're cranol okay you yeah. know they want their weird hallucinogenic C4. Um, yeah, uh, but that whole scene is like what I part of what I like about it, too, is because it does really like um, cement the like idea of what Wilford is. That was where I immediately knew that he was Elon Musk is because he's literally <laughs> like propagandizing children to say like, no, I was right. Look how smart I am. All these people just thought I was building a big dumb train. Well, my train's not so big and dumb now, is it? Like, you're all dead. And I'm here. I'm in charge. Like, it's just the most petty. Like, it's such a good like cross section of like what under a lot of the psychology that underlies like a lot of these kinds of people. Uh, and it's at the end of the day, it's just like constant need for validation uh whether you force it on people or um you know breed them into it in this case or what mm. and yeah. uh like this movie just like keeps hitting you oh it hits you over the head with a lot of these kind of like a lot of that iconography and a lot of these messages but it does it with such like a wide spectrum of different things that are just real world things that people do like it's not it's very rarely just like saying we're using a metaphor and it's more just like hyper reality it's just like extremely extremely exaggerated stuff that happens in real life you know like the tv broadcasting to children is just elon musk tweeting right like or uh the, the passenger train being broken down between like low class and first class and all that stuff is just a thing that happens in real life and I've, I've linked an article here too about like how you know in airplanes in particular like airplanes are designed to make you suffer so that people who can afford to pay more will pay more like it, yeah you know like it's intentionally a miserable experience not because it has to be or because it's more efficient but because people get more money out of it in the end of the day and the yeah. movie just keeps hitting that note over and over again but in many different registers and i love it yeah yeah i totally agree with that um as we move on the movie gets a little bit more spare uh for a few scenes we go to a very uh sort of quiet but terrifying uh cat and mouse sequence in the i guess it's like a sauna mm -hmm. yeah like Except a bathhouse it looks like a area. set from alien <laughs> it does like it's so it weird does. like the it's lighting so and like it's very yeah like spartan and like it's very spaceship yeah a hundred percent and uh this is also where the bad man assassin who's still alive the brother who's still alive we think he goes down and and he goes down with a huge fight we lose several really really uh important characters and i actually was really sad about both gray and octavia spencer's uh characters deaths here um because they've survived so much at this point right and and the the bad man kind of gets both of them uh for her death scene uh there there's a really kind of poignant moment and this is this is what turned completely not completely but this is what made me feel like okay chris evans isn't ruining this movie he's he's okay in this because <laughs> he does he actually does do a really good job of like because this is a quieter moment because there's not as much combat going on at this point after you know they kind of survived the uh, most of the onslaught or he survives most of the onslaught he actually pulls out timmy's picture 
from Octavia Spencer's uh, her character's uh, like her her clothing and shows it to her as like the last thing she sees, which is like. I know it's big. I know it's broad, but it got me right there. It was one of those moments of like, oh, God, she she really has been like fighting through so much. She's already been like slightly disfigured by the combat. She has like a huge, horrible injury on her face uh, throughout most of the movie. And, you know, kind of has a moment. Chris Evans character says, I'll, you know, we'll find him. We'll get him. And, and she's just like, I know. And then kind of looks at the picture and it kind of goes, it's kind of the only hero's death, really. Um, unless I'm missing something, uh, most people just kind of die in this movie yeah. and, it sucks, and it's sad. But yeah, this most is people like don't get one... to do last words in this movie. Yeah, yeah. But literally, Which is interesting. I'm glad, yeah. it, I'm glad she does. Like, I'm glad that her character is not just like a throwaway uh, kind of thing as, you know, kind of one of the only women of color. It's her and Yona, really, who are, are uh, you know, in major speaking roles. Uh, so that's... <laughs> That's worth noting, I it, think. It's a thing I think about, of all things, it's something I think about in Gundam a lot, actually. Of like, Oh, yeah? yeah characters, you know, it's like, it sucks that, like, characters that are, like, people of color and queer and stuff like that end up dying. But at the end of the movie or the end of the series, in the case of Gundam, what you kind of find out is, like, oh, everybody died. <laughs> like, they're not alone. Like, everybody, like, this happened to everybody. Yeah, it wasn't just them, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. And it's, yeah. the, it's the dignity you have when you die that makes all the difference, which I think she has a ton of in this one yeah i i agree with that uh and it, and it doesn't feel forced i actually think it, it reads pretty well it's not just like corny bullshit it's like okay there's one kind of hero's death here and it goes to her and it's not overplayed or anything i mean it's because we have strong performers like with right. weaker performers it would have been just like oh god you know <laughs> yeah uh but yeah it's it's a it's a good moment and uh merit just uh put a, a gif in the chat of like a first-person view of, of like, a gun while combat yeah. is happening. We were talking about, like, the video game analogies earlier. There is literally a shot from yeah. Chris Evans' perspective of him holding this submachine gun, and he's trying to get a beat on Franco while Gray is, like, hitting him in the face. And uh, I don't know why he wouldn't just yell, like, Gray, get back or something. Right. But, but that is just a first-person shooter. And, like, the fact that it's in that environment, too, which, like, uh-huh. looks like a video game. Space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's about to shoot a Reaper on the Citadel right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this is just a moment of Bioshock right here. <laughs> <It's>, uh, oh. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. He's about to shoot a splicer in Arcadia Bay. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. It's, it's a little bit of that. Uh <laughs> Uh, we move through kind of the last uh, few cars here at this point, and we go to the, like, rave-ish. Uh, is it a rave? I don't know. It's what this movie thinks a rave is like. <laughs> I feel like th- that car and the one it- right after it are, like, kind of a weird mix of a rave and an opium den. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. because everyone's doing this drug that, like, rots your brain or whatever. Yeah. Or makes and, you psychic. Uh, what or the other, makes really? you psychic. Yeah. Not really clear. <laughs> yeah. could, it could do either. Yeah. Hey, where's her mom? <sighs> Yona. Yona's mom? Yeah. Was she not the... Was Maybe I... Was she, uh, was she I, the, I, the, the cleaning lady? That's what I was wondering. Oh, probably. Because why else would he make her what, look at that and explain who she was and everything like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, that's a piece I, I may not have uh, picked up on. Hey, where's it, Timmy's dad? I, I don't know. You know what? Maybe maybe that's not super clear and we don't need to judge um, Octavia Spencer's, uh, you know, habits <laughs> in the back of the train. 
Yeah, I guess everybody's I mean, just boning. Yeah. And they just all I, raise their kids to together. Do. John Hurt was in the back of that actually, train. Wait a second. Does any does any child in this movie have two parents? I don't think so. I think they all just have one. Yeah, Andrew only has a, a dad, I think. Yep. So yeah. I mean, like, it's it's pretty clear that people get killed all the time. Yeah. Uh, from that's the back. True. So I feel like it's like not a right. wildly uh, no, but I was going to say, I was going to kind of be like, oh, that's sort of weird that, like, Timmy doesn't have a dad. Like, that's kind of a weird choice. But then, like, oh, nobody has oh, dad yeah, yeah. or mom. I see what you mean. You can Even, only have one. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see why. In the yeah, darkness of the future. <laughs> you can only, you only have, have one, one parent. parent. You can only you can only have one. Even you know? even the parrot that uh, Curtis talks about, like in the past tense from 17 years ago, was only was a single parent. <laughs> he doesn't reference right. a father at all. Right. Yep. Snowpiercer, they're Wait, missing the subtitle, just, only single parents. This is yeah. actually set in a universe where, like, um, people just kind of uh, bud mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. And so, like, oh. anyone can do that. They don't mention that, but that's why everyone can only remember or only has one parent because you sort of just, like, grow a child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's right. And it kind of fits in with the whole thing about people cutting off their limbs. Like, yeah. that's just how they're trying to have a baby. Right. They're trying to grow oh. another one uh-huh. from the arm. Like starfish. cut off. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Wait, are we at the point where that where we can talk about that, that reveal? I think we are, because we've gotten to the front of the train at this point, so, basically. So, okay. Yeah. There's a scene earlier on in the movie where, like, they're trying to get some sleep before their next push. Yeah. And... Uh, Chris Evans' character is talking to John Hurt's character, and he's like, oh, I'm not a leader. I can't be a leader. Like, uh, it's hard to be a leader with two arms. And, like, so at that point in the movie, your read on that situation, or at least my read, was, oh, like, if you haven't stood up to them and sacrificed yeah. something, then how could you possibly be a leader if you're whole and you haven't, like, you know, Put, gotten your arm put out of a car so that people know you've suffered. Right. Um, and he has this big scar on his arm and it's like, wait, what? Did did John Hurd's character give him his arm somehow? That doesn't make any sense. Um, Liquid. <laughs> the whole God. time, uh, Curtis was being possessed, but not actually. He had just self-hypnotized <laughs> to believe that he was being possessed by John Hurd. Uh-huh. Uh, no, but so that's you sort of like your perception of it up until this point. And then we get a lot of exposition as he's talking to an exhausted Namgoong as they've both sort of like slugged it out in front of the door and they have like different ideas. Namgoong wants to blow the door to the outside world open um, because he believes that it's livable. Curtis wants to get to the front of the train to do what? Um, to take to control, murder, I guess. To like- just get revenge. I don't think he's really thought through this well they um, say at the beginning of the movie that all past revolutions failed because they couldn't control the train and or the the engine anytime that they left the engine to be controlled by them they could always just like regroup and use it against them yeah yeah um so then yeah we get this exposition where he's explaining the arm thing because after getting on the train in the back they weren't being fed and they started eating each other. Mm-hmm. And then For a month. there's this fucking yeah, line. It was a long time. Where he's yeah. like, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know that babies taste the best. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then, you know, he's like, oh, yeah. And this one time 
all these men with knives like killed this woman and took her baby and we're going to eat it. But then this old man cut his arm off and was like, eat this if you're so hungry. And they all put their knives down. And he's like, you probably know who that old man was. It's Gilliam, obviously. It's like, but the man who put his knife down was me. Like, I killed my best friend's mother and was going to eat him. (laughs) Yeah. My like weird surrogate little brother. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. On the one hand, excuse me. Like, what? (laughs) This is like incredibly unhinged. But on the other, like, I think it, and it's a little like, 11th hour like wow okay um but what i like about this scene is that it doesn't let chris evans's character be the sort of like like perfect like upstanding infallible hero of the revolution right Right, yeah like this is the first time that it's like oh you killed people and ate babies (laughs) <laughs> oh, so you're just like in down in the muck and like just because you're the protagonist and you're handsome, um, you haven't gotten away from doing bad things. Like if this were a Marvel movie, he would not have eaten the babies. Right. 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 Like he would have been like above that. He would have like starved himself or something. But yeah. no, the protagonist doesn't get to not have participated in the bad stuff because he's the protagonist in this movie. Right. Even Nam Goong, we know, is like, he used to be near the front of the car and is constantly, like, talking about the people from the back end as if they're, like, lesser and stuff like that. He's kind of a yeah. shitbag. He's he's cool. <laughs> like, I like that he his whole thing is that he can, like, in this world that uh, they have been so indoctrinated to think that they can literally only see forward and backwards. Like, they can't mm-hmm. l- imagine a world off to the sides out in the other world because, like... The fascists have ensured that they can't. Um, He's the one person who can see that. He's kind of a dick as well. Like he's oh yeah, he's mm -hmm. he's an asshole too. (laughs) Right. He's classist at the slightest. Right. Right. Um, But yeah, yeah. The the that scene and also the thing with uh, Curtis is that like yeah, he kind of sucked when he was younger. And that's why the bad guy was actually planning on recruiting him the whole time. (laughs) Because like oh yeah, you're just like us. (laughs) Like of course. You know, I see I see so much of myself in you that I want you to lead the train. Also, you were such a coward you couldn't even cut off your own arm to feed people. Uh, you gave up at the last second, on, even on that part. Even on the part where it was like uh, you had a chance to redeem yourself, you chickened out. Like, yeah. And, and so they see, like, it, it never gets really said out loud that that's why they want him necessarily. But it's pretty obvious that, like, they see in him, like, the ability to be this kind of self-serving um, figurehead. And he almost is. Like, up until the very last moment, he pushes Yona away when Yona runs into the room trying to get the matches from him to ignite the um, chronal. Um, yeah. And he's like, well, no, I'm going to lead this train because I can do a better job of it. Like, it, everything will be fine if I'm in charge. That's how that works. <laughs> Uh, we just have to have a benevolent dictator, you know? Uh, right. And then she... An enlightened despot will be fine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, <laughs> and and so they're, like, right. They're like, oh, yeah, like, you are the handsome, like, white, like, immaculate dude or whatever, and also, like, kind of a bad guy. So, of course, like, yeah, of course, they're the they're the one that they want. Like, uh, Chris Evans' character is the one that they want. Um, and then it is revealed that... I don't know, Danielle, do you want to say what, what Yona ends up revealing? Oh, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, we have this whole scene where I just want to note a couple of other uh, quick things here. It's it's supposed to be this really climactic moment, right, of like, 
oh, Curtis is finally at the front with Wilford, and he's just this, like, dorky old man in his bathrobe making steak. And <laughs> Played talking, by Ed Harris. You know, talking bullshit about, mm-hmm. oh, perfect order. Everybody has their perfect place, which, you know, is just villain language. Uh, and Chris Evans is tempted. He's very tempted by it. He learns all these things that, that you just mentioned, Stephen, about, oh, it was all plot all along, and Gilliam was in on it, and all of this, st- you know, you were the perfect man for this revolution because you're fucking bloodthirsty, which he is, and, and he was sort of throughout this. Uh, even though he, he, we saw him feel bad about it, he still is bloodthirsty. He's able to do a lot of murder, right? Right. And then he's about to take it. Like you said, he's about to take this this mantle of the leader. He's about to ascend the throne and become the czar uh, of the train. And then Yona <laughs> uh, has a premonition. She has her clairvoyance. And she goes under the sort of floorboard, which shows why the children are being taken. Uh, they're, they're the only people who are small enough to become a literal part of the train uh, and presumably die when they grow a little bit. But five-year-old children are taken. They're measured and they're taken to be a part of the train. And Wilford just lets like, oh, yeah, that part went extinct uh, a couple years ago. And good thing, uh, you know, good thing the back of the train just breeds them. Uh, which kind of shakes Curtis out of his uh, bullshit uh, temptation, basically. It's like a last temptation of Christ kind of moment. It's very dramatic, very, very dramatic. He goes to the engine. He sees how pretty it is, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it shakes him out of it, and he's able to kind of kill Wilford, and uh, then Yona is able to get the match and uh, blow out the door, which is also very dramatic. And now we're here. And it explodes uh, Claude, the by the way, like uh, the, the woman who was stealing... Right. The stealing the children in the first place, who is like another kind of like branch of fascism in this in this movie of just like she knows exactly what's going on and she just does not give a fuck. She just like mm-hmm. uh, she gets a shoe thrown at her, is like bleeding out of her hair, out of her head, and everything like that. And they're like checking on her. The cops are checking on her. They're like, "Oh, you were right." And she's like, "Fucking get out of my face! I don't even fucking de- want to deal with it." <laughs> um, and but is like, yeah, of her course, deal is a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she like wakes up just in time to get super, super exploded by the, the bomb. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Merit, do you want to handle the sort of ending sequence <laughs> of events here? Um, yeah. So, I mean, we were, you know, in, in the conversation earlier between Namgung and Curtis, Namgung is talking about how like, or maybe this was earlier on, but he was talking about how like, oh, the snow is like, like the kind of snow that is ready to just like crack and yeah. melt because uh, it's getting warmer gradually outside. So we need to like blow the door open. And so like when they do blow the door, it causes a huge avalanche <laughs> and <laughs> totally fucks the train. And uh, yeah, as far as I can tell, well, I think definitely um, the two the two characters survive. Yeah. Um, right. Timmy and Yona. Timmy and, yeah, and Yona. Uh, and they have these, like, huge winter coats on, and they don't look like they're dying. Like, they're just, yeah. they get out, and they're, like, pretty calm. Right. And uh, they see a polar bear, which is, like, oh, if a polar bear's alive, that, that means that seals are alive, probably. Right. Which means that yeah. fish are alive, which means that, the planet can like support life. There must again. be algae or plants or something exactly, somewhere. There has to be yeah. something. So alive. like yeah. something's alive. And if they don't get eaten by that polar bear, then <laughs> so like I think it's implied that like there are other survivors, but Gotta we just be. like don't see them. And uh it is kind of like this hopeful ending, right? And like to me actually, like 
Um, oh, I can't really talk about that because Danielle hasn't finished it. Uh, oh. Wait, Danielle, have you even started playing Disco Elysium or, or are you going to? Oh, I haven't. It's okay. I'm okay. I'm okay with spoilers. I don't mind them. That uh, much. Also, yeah, spoilers okay. for the listeners. There's good movies. Yeah, for the, for I was going to say spoilers for Disco yeah. Elysium. At the end of that game, there's a moment where this thing intrudes onto the narrative and like mm-hmm. into your reality that's like totally outside of the rest of the world and like was presumed like to have not even existed. Like this cryptid shows up. And starts talking to you and um, in like a really weird alien way. And to me. It's so good. It's very good. And to me, like that moment in that game was like, oh, there is something outside um, of capitalism. Like there is something outside of it that we could reach. And to me, the polar bear is like kind of maybe an even more obvious metaphor of like, oh, we have like completely fucked like we just blew up the system and there is something out there right. that's not this and we can go and figure out what it is. Yeah. And when I first saw, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I want to go back to um, the last temptation of Curtis, but we can talk about this first. Yeah, no, I mean, we should, we should talk last temptation first. Cause I just have moments on the, uh, what the kind of what the ending means. So, okay. so let's go back to this temptation. I, Chris, uh, the, Curtis is in the one dungeon. point in the narrative where I thought this movie kind of faltered. The kids thing, I feel like it was like a little much. Like yeah. that for me is the point <laughs> sure. at which this movie went from like, okay, kind of makes sense to like cartoon villain. Like, oh, we need their little hands to do it. And it's like, <laughs> yes, okay, no, sure. Capitalism has done that for a long time, has forced children to work. That's real. But like, it was almost like a little t- too like cartoony. Do you know what I mean? Like it was like he was like basically broken and like ready to accept the sort of whole thing that was going on, which was that he was like being groomed to replace at Harris. And then he's like, oh, they're using kids to like make the train go. And that's right. where I draw the line. Yeah. Like it was I'm not really sure how else you could have ended that in a way that like didn't involve him just taking over the head of the train, which would be a very different movie. Right. Yoda but, fucking killing him and blowing it up anyway or something like that. Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, he's definitely dead, but like, yeah. Um, I don't know. That for me was like just a little like too, I think too much. If I can say just, I think that the, the reveal itself is fine. I think, because obviously it is like a lot of this movie it is just taking real events and like you know hyper contextualizing them i think where it comes a little bit weird is this movie you know this movie's just over uh two hours long so i think they were trying to maybe keep it tight but it is a it is one reveal after seven other reveals about how evil head (laughs) eris is yeah yeah no i think that's yeah because like prior to this we've had like the the chris evans reveal Right. About how he's yeah. a bad man. Gilliam. And Gilliam was a bad man. Gilliam was in on and it. And yeah. Ed Harris is a bad man. I do like Ed Harris as kind of like God in this weird little like austere chamber. And he's like, hey, come on in. Like, what's up? I'm God. <laughs> um, like, that's my favorite thing when like there's a reveal of like the great powerful man. And he's just like mm-hmm. wearing a like a house coat. Bathrobe. Yeah. <laughs> and he lives in like this really like austere little weird place where he just cooks on his little skillet. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah. Another good Tilda Swinton movie, um, Constantine. Uh, not mm. a great Hell, Hellblazer adaptation, but a good movie in its own right. Has a really good <laughs> uh, Peter Stormara as uh, the devil, just wearing like a suit nice. at the end of that movie, playing a very similar role in this, where he just shows up the last five seconds and he's just kind of like this, just like, hey, what's up? I'm the devil. <laughs> yeah. It, it's. I love that he's just like this dorky little man. Like, he's not, like, the great and power. It's a very Wizard of Oz kind of thing. and uh, He's a train guy. <laughs> he's like, such a train he's guy. He's a train guy. <laughs> like, it's, he, it's just they show videos of him as a kid where he's like, I love train. I want to live on a train forever is a thing that he says. As he a does child. say that. Like, yeah. right at the, yeah. Like, Which, footage of him when he's like five years old. I want to live on a train forever. And he I, got his wish. He loved I actually train. wondered if that was really him or if that was like staged yeah. footage that they had right. recorded after the fact. That's, there's a good chance of that. Yeah. Which, yeah. I kind of love the idea of him. <laughs> like a five year old Ed Harris. It's like. He just sounding like trains. adult Ed Harris. Yeah. I love train. <laughs> Hello, Chris. It's, it's really Hello, Chris. not much has changed, right? Uh, so he has a five-year-old's morality I, too. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> why don't we talk about like the ending sequence, and then I want to talk about whether the premise of this movie makes any sense to begin with. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. And and the one thing I wanted to note about the sort of uh, temptation uh, sort of moment here is also this is one of those places where the movie uh, my biggest question about this movie and I do really like it and I do think it's very very well done actually and I liked it even better on my second viewing but if it gets too broad or too over the top for its own good at times and I and I do think uh, for me it's it's where Andrew the other little boy doesn't listen to Curtis when he's trying to is he like and it's, drugged it's so or... fucking over the top yeah like I don't understand that. Like I, I couldn't. Like they clearly drugged that one guy that they tortured um, a little bit before they stuck his arm out of the train. So I wondered if maybe the kid was supposed to be drugged or something like that. Because Timmy also doesn't listen to him. Like Timmy is just like keeping on, keeping on under the train while he's like, well, Chris Evans. I, I think we forgot to mention sticks his arm, the, the arm that yeah, he tried to cut off. Yeah, I was gonna say off. that also adds to it where it's like, oh, this was the arm he needed to he sacrifice did, he all did along. Lose the like, arm, yeah, a little. It's a little much, like like you like you said, Mary. But this is where all of those metaphors come together in such a way that it is like, is this too big? Is this too comic book to like kind of make the points that this movie is otherwise, I think, making pretty well. Uh, but yeah, this is not maybe the, <laughs> the finest moment, but I do actually really love the ending. And at the time, uh, maybe I'm recalling this differently, but at the time, I think there was kind of a debate about like, oh, is this like a really bleak ending where it's like two kids who have no survival skills? They're going to go e get eaten by that bear. Like they've got, no it it's like a 17 year old who has visions, but also probably needs Kernel to like survive at this point. She's been, she's been huffing that stuff the whole time. Uh, and a five-year-old who is malnourished to the point where he's small enough to to fit in a like a compartment. I didn't mean to laugh. Like it's really cruel and terrible. But like this really, the, if if I were to say the two people who are the most physically capable of of handling a polar bear, it might not be those two, right? Right. But I find it a very hopeful uh, ending. Like we've got the blue sky, we've got the the bear. They're they look okay. Like they actually look like oh, if we cuddle enough, we're gonna be all right. We're gonna find other settlements. We're gonna figure out a way to kind of survive and I always found it very helpful especially it's like two young people of color right there's a lot of like shitty white people fascists in this movie and it's like yeah it's, it's like a young it's like a, a a black kid and an Asian kid and they're they might figure it out which I always found pretty nice and it sounds like uh everybody here kind of read that like more hopeful 
vibe to the ending here. I, I view it as hopeful, you know, for a variety of different reasons. First off, I don't believe everybody on the train is dead. Like, I just... Uh, yeah, like, yeah. I don't believe that Yona suddenly became a mass murderer at the end of the, this movie. I don't think that right. that was, like, what they intended. Because there's a ton of people still in the tail section that just didn't come with them. Like, you know, disabled right. people and older people and stuff like that who, like, weren't able to fight. And other children. I don't think she killed a bunch of kids. Um, yeah. I don't think that this that that's this movie. I, I also would say that... Um, like Merritt pointed out earlier, like, I don't believe for a second that, like, this guy's little fucking kingdom is the only place on Earth that would have survived such a thing. Like, I've, I feel like as Snowpiercer is happening, there's, like, 30 other little micro-stories in a similar way happening across the planet, um, you know, for various reasons. And maybe we'll find out in the hit new 2020 TBS series. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, all about those series. Um... And the other thing, too, is, like, my thing about it, too, which we talked about, is that, like, the polar bear implies that there is an ecosystem. Like, there is a world, like, in a to in perfectly pragmatic sense, not even just, like, Merritt, you put it beautifully with the, like, talking about how things exist outside of capitalism, like, that very Ursula K. Le Guin style, like, just you have to imagine a world beyond what you think you can imagine and it's there because it always is. Um, but also I just, you know, even if the world has become completely uninhabitable to human beings, life is going on in some form on the planet. Like the reveal is that humans didn't completely mm -hmm. fuck it. They maybe fucked it up for themselves and made yeah, it uninhabitable right, yeah. for them, but like not for the planet itself. The planet is going right. to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, so, I do, I do, this is, a bit, I think this is something that is genuinely of its time, uh, which is that, like, the whole, like, and the children will make everything better is very <laughs> 2013 versus today, where it's just like, no, nah, motherfucker, like, fix it now. You <laughs> like, like, don't wait, for, just, don't just assume that the kids are going to make it better so you can, like, just fuck everything up and uh, it'll be fine because your kids will do better than you. Like, you don't have, we don't have time for that. And also, it's yeah. pretty selfish to just assume that the kids will, will do it better, which this movie doesn't quite, like, Chris Evans and, and, um... Uh, uh, Nam uh, kill themselves to save the kids at the end of this. Like they uh, they don't like come out of this unscathed in a way that like feels like it was like. And now we're passing the torch to you. It's it's more like no, we are literally we are going to like do the right thing to protect you at the end here. Or our way is fucked, and they, it's right. like they know their way is fucked. It, well, it I, certainly, Kurosawa knew that. Like he he was. It, there, there's an interesting juxtaposition here of like their final conversation about like. What what is to be done? Which I've been so. Here, this is somewhat related, I promise. But I've been listening to uh, Revolutions podcast uh, about the Russian Revolution. I'm listening to it for a second time now, so I actually digest all of it because my recall isn't great uh, all the time when I'm listening to like educational podcasts. I'm just you know in outer space sometimes. Uh, but there is a really lovely kind of uh, area here uh, that that speaks towards or at least gestures towards the idea of like the schisms in a revolutionary group, right? Of like the the maybe more moderate liberals who see things one way and the more reactionary perhaps uh, or or the more extreme end of that, like the people who are like, no, revolution now versus the people who are like, well, we can do reforms. Now, this is obviously in a very over the top action movie. So it's not like, oh, uh either of them are actually moderates in any possible way, right? They both want like a really extreme course of action here. We don't, there is no room for politics. There is no room for reform. There is no room for that process, but there is something kind of great about that being, oh, these are two different paths towards a new way of life or a new way of thinking. 
Uh, and Chris Evans kind of only really converts to that at the very, very, very end when he sees that, like, oh, there's no possible way forward for this. It's going to involve uh, killing babies and, and their little hands, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's literally that, that is something that works for me. Right. Uh, sort of revisiting this. Yeah. The, yeah, like, and it's not even just killing babies. I think that is. I mean. Again, I think that's why that part works by itself. It's just it's just that the ending is just like, okay, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing is the yeah, weird part. Yeah. But like, because there is a pretty fine line, I would say, or a, a pretty wide line between killing babies uh, in like the week and stuff like that when you're literally starving and have been for months or whatever and signing up to farm human beings to become spare parts for a machine that is that's falling what apart. I meant. To, be, to be clear, that's the part that I meant. Right. Not the not the sort of uh, you know, butchery by desperation, but what Wilford wanted. Right. Like the Wilford version of the world. When I, when I said, sorry, when I said killing the babies, I meant Timmy and Andrew. Oh, yeah, so, totally. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't um, you know, calling out your interpretation of it. I'm just saying oh, no, that, no, like, no. I no I think that that works as, like, a kind of a wake-up call for him in that way because, like, yeah, his his narrow vision of, like, what is possible is, well, we have to control the train. Uh, and whether that's, like, he ends up controlling it through revolution or he ends up controlling it through inheritance from Ed Harris, uh, that's his ultimate yeah. objective. And Nam's objective is to get off the train, um, probably inspired by his, what we assume is probably his dead wife, um, who also had that same opinion um, 17 years ago or however long it was. Um, and, yeah, it's... It, to your point about like him um, saying that his way is busted, like he cannot, like there is no version of it. Even if he, you know, takes over the train by revolution, kills Ed Harris and has everybody else in charge. There's no, they literally do not have the resources. They don't have the machines. They don't have the parts to keep that train running without like perpetual human misery and cost and stuff like that. So like his model, like, yeah, one way or the other does not work. Turns out even the enlightened despots aren't good. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> good shit. All right. Do we have any other sort of final thoughts about the movie, Merritt Mary and Stephen? So if you're trying to, like, make a train that goes forever, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is, is, like, rigid stra- social stratification the best way to do that? <laughs> like, I know that, like, ultimately logically that system doesn't make sense even outside of a closed train and it's because of the like self-interest and like reproducing capital of the rich that it persists but if you're trying to do a train that goes forever and it's like i I don't know. It's like, does that make sense to just be like, oh, we will let them breed forever. We'll just kill a bunch of them. And like, we'll never run out of bullets. It'll be fine. Like, I guess you could argue that like, well, that's just the world too. Is yeah. like, it, we'll the never world run out of is also fuel. a train in its yeah. own way. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The world is just a bigger train and we are always going forward into the future and et cetera, et cetera, metaphors. But like twirling, 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 twirling (laughs) towards freedom. It just seems to me that if you were setting up a train like that, you'd be like, okay, um, people are going to start getting crazy really quickly. So what we have to do is like have some kind of like system, which will placate them rather than like instigate like revolutions, you know? Right. Like, like poke them until they, I mean, they give them food, right? The food comes from the front. And that's, yeah, that's true. Kind of what it is, right? 
That's true, I guess. And I guess I am. I guess this is really just like, but that's the real world too. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. Also, this this movie exists in such a heightened sense of reality with the with the ski masks that nobody could possibly see out of and all that stuff. Like, <laughs> there are certain things where I'm just like, okay, that's fine. Okay, this is Bioshock. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess I my mean, it's. it's- much more nuanced, actually, but yes. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> go on, go on. Sorry. I, I was going to say, I think I've I've talked everybody's ear off about this movie for the most part, so I don't have any really closing thoughts. But like one thing I did write down in my notes that I was really proud of was um, in the scene with the axes in the dark car. Uh, I did like that Snowpiercer is a movie that knows um, when you have an axe and a bunch of other people come running at you and they outnumber you. What you've effectively done is give a bunch of other people an axe. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> because immediately, because immediately, just like Chris Evans, just like no, well, I guess that's my axe now, and now, and now our revolution has uh, has weapons. Cool, thanks. Like you dumbasses. Uh, this is very good. It was a very medieval combat kind of scene. It was very much out of like a, a whatever medieval style action movie or you know that type of combat where it was like it's just a numbers game Mm -hmm. like because there is no superior weapon like of course yes i'm sure there's some better swords and some better axes but you're just throwing numbers at numbers and there's not uh, i mean if fire emblem has taught me anything it's that swords beat axes (laughs) (laughs) i mean not anymore not on switch they don't not anymore that was too confusing it's too complicated um (laughs) actually that like from a combat perspective like you know not that i'm any kind of expert or whatever but one of the things i also noticed immediately about this movie is like they outnumber them like you know 100 to 1 throughout the movie but by virtue of the fact that it is literally a train they are constantly being funneled so their number is advantage is kind of like it's the one situation where the the kind of class warfare like numbers game of like uh, realizing, oh, we outnumber them like 10 billion to one um, actually works uh, in the favor of the rich because like, well, yeah, we outnumber them, but only five of us can fight five of them at any one time and they have axes and guns sometimes. Yeah, super fair. I I think the metaphors mostly work in this movie. Mm-hmm. If we're coming to the question of is it too over the top for its own good? Like, yes, in a couple of places, for, for the most part, it it works. It works really well. And even though this movie is now, God, seven years old, which is <laughs> banana pants to me, uh, because that was 2013 was the year I started working in games media full time. So uh, here we are, right? Much <laughs> um, like Edgar, you are suddenly uh, met with the realization that you're getting older every single day. It's it's true. It's true. You can't get away from it. It's uh, inevitable. Uh, I do think it's it's a it's a very well done if very over-the-top movie about power and revolution and people and uh, incredible lighting. Just incredible <laughs> lighting. Just, oh my God, some of the best production design and uh, cinematography and lighting that really that we've seen in an action movie in a while. And that's not to say that action movies aren't gorgeous and, and beautiful because often they are, but my God, I was sitting here like, the shot, like just <laughs> the most uh, obnoxious version of my goddamn self uh, sitting there with like <laughs> the lighting and like, you know, freeze framing and looking at it and looking at possible light sources, which is to say that I should probably uh, uh, use this for <laughs> use this for my other job sometime. Mm. Uh, don't you love it when you can use content twice? Yeah, you can uh, play it for people in your ambulance. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to do. I was going to be like, so this is when we get to eat sushi, dear friend with a broken leg. Uh, and then we're all going to be very happy. So if if, the, if those are the final thoughts, uh, thank you all for being here. That's uh, about all we've got for this week. We hope you enjoyed your cinematic journey with us. Be sure to rate and review our podcast. I know it's so annoying when I say that, but please do because it really does help us. Uh, listen to all our stuff at fanbyte.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Fanbyte Media, on Instagram at Fanbyte, TikTok, because we do TikToks, at uh, Fanbyte, and of course, on Fanbyte.com. And you can watch Late Lunch, our excellent Monday, Wednesday, Friday talk show on twitch.tv slash Fanbyte. Steven, where can people find you online? That would be at Steven Strum on Twitter, S-T-E-V-E-N-S-T-R-O-M. Awesome. And Merritt, where can people find you online? At Merritt K on Twitter. Awesome. And if you'd like, you can follow me at Danielle R-I on Twitter. And as we always like to say, you'd love to see it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.